You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I mean, I think the entire valuation of the company is premised on on the existing deposit Baptiste. And in fact, I think we're way undervalued on that basis. We trade at a at a multiple of about, uh, we trade for about 5%. Our market cap represents about 5% of the project value um, as described in our PEA. Whereas companies at this stage in this market, base metal companies are typically trading in the range of 15 to 20% of their project value. So we think we're way undervalued on the basis of Baptiste alone. I'm Bill Powers. This is Mining Stock Education. Thank you for tuning in again. We're going to be speaking with Martin Turan. He is the president and CEO of FPX Nickel, one of our sponsors. And Martin will bring us up to speed on what's going on in the nickel market, as well as the progress FPX Nickel has made thus far and plans to make in the remainder of 2021. So Martin, welcome back onto the program. And since we last spoke, can you give us some of the key things that have occurred in the nickel market to bring us up to speed, please? Yeah, so thanks for having us on again, Bill, and it's good to see you. Um, so the nickel market, um, you know, had a bit of a decline actually in the first quarter of 2021 on some news out of Indonesia and some Chinese companies that are operating there uh, on their ability to produce nickel sulfate, which is the nickel battery chemical, in a in a different way um, than was previously assumed could be done. Uh, so the market sold off a little bit on that, and I think in more recent weeks. What we've seen is nickel inventories have been declining, and I think the market has digested that news and realized it maybe isn't the game changer that some people feared it would be. And in fact, I think it's actually good news for the nickel market. Uh, one of the biggest risks for the nickel price going for for the nickel market going forward is actually that the nickel price goes too high too quickly. Um, we want to make sure the nickel price stays at strong but moderate levels to ensure that you know it's it, it, there's no substitution risks. And I think that's something that people often don't think about when commodity prices go high. Um, uh, certainly, a company like us, the nickel price trading around eight dollars a pound as it is today, we 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 believe our project would be very profitable. And you know what we've seen in previous markets is when commodity prices run too high too quickly, it can end up actually cratering the market in the long term, which is which is not what we want to see. Two of the primary uses of nickel, as you've informed my audience in the past, is stainless steel and also batteries. So, what would be a substitute for both those applications? Yeah, so for stainless steel, you can make different types of stainless steel that are less nickel-containing, and some that in fact include no nickel. Now, these are lower quality stainless products and so less desirable than the nickel-rich stainless. Um, so that's one element of potential substitution. The other is with respect to the uh, electric vehicle batteries. What we've seen in recent years is the, the battery manufacturers have been trying to engineer the cobalt out of, out of batteries uh, for several reasons. One of them driven by the fact that cobalt, uh, the price of cobalt is relatively high. And so if you can swap in nickel, which is what the trend has been, then you would rather have nickel in the cobalt for several reasons, including cost. Uh, however, if the nickel price was to run super high, you could expect that battery manufacturers might you know, try to work out new technologies, um, not in the short term, but certainly in the long term, that might you know, reduce the amount of nickel in the batteries. But there's not a metal you have in mind that could replace what, how nickel functions in the battery right now. Uh, not as such. I mean, there are, you know, a more iron-based batteries that are uh, seen as alternatives to nickel-rich batteries. But the, the, the iron-rich batteries, while lower cost, also have much lower performance in terms of the range for the cars or the charging time. 
Um, so those, those are things that would mitigate against, I think, the wide adoption of those of that iron rich alternative to the nickel rich batteries. It's often said that we cannot have the electrical vehicle revolution without copper, but you also say that nickel is the preeminent or ultimate battery metal. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, and, it, and at the end of the day, it's actually not me saying that. It's it's really the demand forecast for these metals by you know major mining companies and by metals analysts. You know, Glencore had a very good slide in one of their recent presentations where they projected the demand for the metals that they are are are, are produce um, in 2050 versus the 2019 as the baseline. And what that showed is that they expect copper demand in 2050 to be double what it is today. Uh, whereas for nickel, they, they expect the demand to be almost four times what it is today. And so, yes, copper absolutely benefits from electrification. But owing to the relatively smaller scale of the nickel market, nickel actually stands to benefit proportionally significantly more. And in my view, is, is therefore kind of, as you say, uh, kind of that, that ultimate EV battery metal. When you're looking at nickel investments, you have to think about where is it's going to where is it going to be refined? How is it going to be refined? The Biden Biden administration is talking about U.S. domestic nickel refineries. How does this impact the industry as a whole and your project specifically? Yeah, so the White House has come out actually just in recent days um, with some new guidance, a new a new report naming nickel as one of the three key uh, critical minerals for the ultimate electrification of of the economy uh, in the United States. So that's nickel, uh, cobalt, and lithium. Uh, and then there's some second order commodities, including copper. Um, and so the Biden administration is recognizing the criticality of nickel supply, of securing nickel supply, if it wants to, to, to see the electrification of the US vehicle fleet, which from a regulatory standpoint, we can argue whether um, that should be kind of a regulatory push or not. But what we're seeing in governments worldwide is they are wanting to push economies towards elect electrification of transport. And so if you're going to have a U.S. auto industry that's focused on developing fleets of electric, uh, electric vehicles, uh, domestic supply of these materials, both in terms of you know, mines and more importantly, processing capacity is something the Biden administration has, has flagged as being critical. Uh, and what we've seen, in, I think, certainly since the onset of the pandemic, is we've seen the trend towards regionalization of supply chains globally. We don't necessarily want to be beholden to supply of critical items uh, that we need in our day-to-day -day from coming from places that are far afield. So the current administration is talking quite a bit about working with allied countries, including Canada, for the supply of critical materials. Uh, and that means, you know, of course, things like nickel, and that, we believe, should put a premium on the ability of Canadian nickel producers or nickel mine developers to sell into the market um, because, because of that kind of global sort of strategic push, that ge those geopolitical considerations for the U.S. So U.S. automakers are also moving upstream into battery production. And Elon Musk has telegraphed that that's where he wants to go with his company, too. Uh, and that is that just along the themes of what you've been talking about? This is all bullish for your product and who you expect to supply? Yeah. So we've seen, you know, in recent weeks, for example, Ford announced a joint venture with a large Korean battery maker uh, to produce, uh, to develop battery production facilities in North America. Um, again, so that there's that security of supply around the batteries that would go into the Ford vehicle fleet. Um, 
And so that's a real, you know, interesting signal of the importance that automakers are placing on moving upstream in order to secure batteries. And we think the next stage beyond that is actually for the battery makers and the automakers to have to think very serious, seriously about, you know, securing raw materials supply. Because um, you can't build the batteries, of course, without those fundamental raw materials like nickel. And again, that just speaks to for, for FPX, given the scale of the nickel deposit that we have, the ability to produce it at a large scale for potential for low cost in an environmentally friendly manner, we think it puts us in the catbird seat and it opens up the field of potential strategic partners for us beyond just mining companies and now actually looking at potential collaboration in years to come with battery makers or car, or car makers. Martin uh, Waterton engaged Goldman Sachs to sell their nickel project in Quebec for uh, hopefully a billion dollars. Give us the details, like a little bit of the history here and what's the significance of the asking price if they're able to get it. Specifically, how would it correlate back to what you're trying to do in monetizing your projects? Yeah, so Dumont is a discovery actually that dates back, you know, over 50 years. Um, and it's located in Quebec. It's a large, relatively low-grade uh, nickel deposit. Um, in more recent years, it was owned by a company called Royal Nickel. And Waterton is a big mining private equity uh, shop based in Toronto who acquired 100% interest in, in, in that asset. Um, there's been, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars spent historically on developing Dumont to the point where it stands today. And what you see now is, is a project that in previous cycles may not have sort of made it past the finish line. I think Waterton is of the view that it will get built in this coming cycle. And, you know, they have targeted a, a, that billion dollar valuation, which I think, you know, when you look at a company like FPX, our Baptiste deposit, uh, we think that, that our project actually lines up very favorably and, and in our view is actually a better deposit than what, what, uh, what, what is there at Dumont in terms of having a lower cost profile, higher uh, nickel production capacity, uh, and a longer mine life, we think that that billion-dollar valuation for that, that Waterton is seeking for that asset bodes well for our company, which you know has a U.S. dollar market cap of around $100 million right now. And there's a parallel, too, in that a, um, a group was able to come in and buy a distressed asset and then monetize it. There's a little bit of that in your history, I guess, too, right, with what you have with Baptiste? Yeah, it's kind of the the eternal story, really, of the mining industry, where projects can get moved forward through a bull market. You know, they then kind of um, uh, have difficulty sort of accessing capital in bear market, and and there typically is oftentimes a change in ownership and multiple owners of a deposit. And the people who really benefit through that cycle are those who buy at a low and are able to sell at a high. And that's kind of what we've done here with FPX. Um, you know, this project used to be in a joint venture with a Cliffs, a Cleveland Cliffs, a large U.S. iron ore producer. They spent a bunch of money, almost 25 million U.S. to advance the project. Um, uh, we were then able to buy the asset out from Cliffs when their Canadian operations went bankrupt for under 5 million um, in late 2015, really at the bottom of the cycle. So it was a very strategic acquisition, very well-timed acquisition for us. And, you know, the next ultimate step for us will be to ultimately monetize the asset in that same way. And Baptiste is in the Dakar Nickel District. Now, Central, that you're going to do this summer is the van target. We talked about this last time, you know, bigger footprint, higher grades on surface than what you're seeing at Baptiste. Remind us what you're going, going to try to accomplish here this summer. Yeah, so the land package we control at Dakar is very large. It covers 245 square kilometers. 
And within that, we have defined the Baptiste deposit. We've completed several mineral resource estimates and a PEA on that deposit in September of 2020, which shows the project is, is very robust at today's uh, nickel price. Uh, Baptiste only covers about 1% of the overall land package that they car. So there is a vast amount of exploration potential beyond Baptiste to discover other deposits. And the real prize is to discover other deposits that might be of a similar scale, but might be even higher grade. And so six kilometers north of Baptiste, we've identified a very large target called Van um, on the basis of favorable uh, magnetic surveys, as well as outcropping bedrock. So the mineralization is sticking up out of the ground here over a very large area. In fact, an area that, that is larger than the footprint of Baptiste. Uh, and the grades at surface of Van are higher than what we see at Baptiste. Um, this area had been previously inaccessible to us because of being, it being covered by dense forest. There's been logging activities in more recent years that have cleared the trees away. So this summer, we're actually going to be embarking on our maiden, our first drill program at Van with, with we think, you know, interesting potential for a brand new major nickel de deposit discovery to go on top of Baptiste, which is already the third largest undeveloped nickel deposit in the world. And that's 3,000 meters. Is that right? Am I recalling correctly? Yeah, uh, 3,000 meters, which is fairly modest in terms of the, the total meterage, but the style of nickel mineralization that we have here is very homogeneous, very consistently disseminated. And so we can actually prove up a uh, significant tonnage ore body, even on that, that relatively modest amount of drilling, because we are doing it on very wide spaced uh, centers. And would it be too much to say that you could even have an inferred resource at the end of the year? Uh, no, that, that's a possibility. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I wouldn't kind of guide the market to that as such, but certainly we'll have enough data to be able to do some internal modeling uh, and, and understand the sort of the beginnings of the shape of a potential ore body there. If you experience success and you see the mineralization at Van that you desire, how does that change FPX? I mean, hopefully it would increase the market cap, of course, but does that shift attention to Van away from Baptiste? Can you work on both at the same time? Well, yes, it really speaks to what our corporate strategy is, and it's a twofold strategy. The, the first prong of it is, is taking the existing deposit, Baptiste, and moving it from the PEA into the preliminary feasibility study. And that comes with a whole host of activities that are going to de-risk the asset and really demonstrate that it is as robust as the PEA uh, suggested it would be. Uh, the other side of the story is that expiration at the van target and also at several other targets that we've identified throughout the uh, throughout the land package. And if certainly if we're successful at the van target, um, and if, you know, if, if we are able to define a deposit there that might be higher grade than Baptiste, it would certainly cause us to kind of consider what the appropriate development plan is. And, and if we've got a new sort of 1A deposit and Baptiste becomes 1B, that, that'll be a nice problem to have. You, uh, in your studies for the Baptiste deposit, you're focusing on supplying the nickel market with, in a low carbon economy, low, low net zero carbon. Talk to us about what progress you've been able to make. And I'm also intrigued and interested to learn, are investors recognizing what you're tr trying to do here on the ESG level? Yeah, okay. A lot. There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, we know that the mining industry is by, by its very nature, a carbon intensive industry, right? There's a lot of CO2 emissions associated with mining and processing. And that's particularly true <clears throat> in nickel. And so what we've done is we've done some really good work to estimate what the carbon footprint of nickel production at our facility would be. And what that, that, sh what that shows is that we'd actually be among the large, lowest carbon footprint uh, uh, nickel producers anywhere in the world. 
we think that's really important for downstream um, consumers, for battery makers, and ultimately consumers um, who are going to want to ensure that the that the materials that go into EV batteries were res- responsibly sourced and sourced in a way that is a low carbon from a low carbon source. Because if 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 the material that goes in an EV battery is dirty in it in how it was produced, it kind of really mitigates the any kind of net environmental benefit from buying an EV in the first place. Um, Beyond that, we've shown that we actually in our tailings have unique potential to sequester carbon dioxide, and that would actually potentially render our project carbon neutral or even potentially carbon uh, net negative, which is pretty exciting and would definitely be the first of its kind for the nickel industry. You know, to your point on investors, yes, absolutely. We are seeing genuine interest in this theme. I mean, you know, ESG is now kind of on the on the lips of, of all really investors, whether they're ESG funds or not. You know, we've seen generalist investors around the world, large pension funds and others, you know, divesting investments um, that they might have had in things like oil and gas uh, companies because of the associated ESG footprint. So even if you yourself are not kind of fixated on ESG considerations for your own personal investments, the, the trend is certainly there. And ESG or companies that have sort of negative ESG profile or high carbon emitters are going to have a higher cost of capital, more difficult access to, to capital, whereas companies that are positioned uh, in a better light with respect to ESG considerations that have lower carbon footprint, I think they're going to have easier access to capital and, and more investor interest. And we're certainly seeing that. We, we saw that definitely in the uh, financing that we completed in April, where we raised $16 million from institutional funds. It's really the first institutionally backed fundraise in the company's history. And a lot of that was premised, you know, based on our meetings with those groups, on people playing the EV battery metals thematic, and and really being attracted to this idea of EV battery metals that are sourced in a, in a low carbon way. How did that financing come about, Martin? Was it a case of you sowing the seeds through meetings, and eventually it came back to you, or did you solicit that investment? Yeah, it was really soliciting, or it was really sowing the seeds rather through through meetings. And you know, we've been fortunate over the last year to get analyst coverage for the first time from uh, two uh, Toronto-based uh, investment banks, Cormark Securities and Paradigm Capital. Um, and both of those groups were instrumental. That was actually a bought deal where they were seeing a lot of of institutional interest in our story and kind of came to us and said that. You know, there's an opportunity to raise a, a, a significant amount of money on fairly uh, favorable terms, you know, a straight share, no warrants, et cetera. And so we took that opportunity and, and have added kind of significant institutional ownership to our shareholder base for the first time. And we expect to see this story become more and more institutionally held, which I think is great for our, for our retail shareholders who kind of can, can see opportunities there to, to, for the uh, shareholder base to mature and that allows retail opportunities kind of, you know, ready, willing buyers should they wish to sell their positions as the company continues to advance and the share price goes up in, in due course. And the share price has been trading a little below that deal where it was priced at. Uh, what's your commentary regarding this? Yeah, we, we had some selling pressure actually from one of the Canadian funds that participated in that uh, financing where they were having to sell um, for their own reasons, uh, a number of their junior equity positions. And so that was uh, about uh, eight different companies that they were selling aggressively out of actually just in the last week or so. Uh, that position has been exhausted now. They sold that out. We had a particularly high trading volume day um, uh, just over a week ago. 
uh, that position has been kind of uh, extinguished now. And, and we think of this as a sort of a temporary kind of buying opportunity for people to look at the stock and to be able to buy it at a level before below where we financed at just recently. All right. And Martin, as we kind of wrap it up here, key catalyst to look to, to is it going to be the drill results out of Van, the big thing that investors should look to? Yeah. Uh, drill results at Van is, is going to be very important. Some other regional exploration news on moving some other targets to the drill-ready stage as well, which we're quite excited about. Uh, you know, that fundamental work on de-risking, including on metallurgy with respect to the, to the main deposit, Baptiste, as well as more news on carbon sequestration. We hope to be able to expand that, uh, that, and we're talking to varying levels of government about accessing additional funding for that work. So that acts as nice sort of validation from, uh, from governments as well to support that work and, and bring it forward. Um, and finally, we'll also have some more work and news on our ability to produce nickel sulfate, which is nickel in the battery chemical form that's required for the EVs. So lots going on this year. We're kind of fully funded really over the next two years plus to execute on a whole host of, of you know, fundamental project de-risking and, and exploration activities. So it's a pretty exciting time for us. And what would be the, the biggest risk then? If there's not a funding risk, is it just lack of discovery? Would that be one of your biggest risks? Yeah, I, I don't think the lack of discovery is really a risk. I mean, I think the entire valuation of the company is premised on, on the existing deposit Baptiste. And in fact, I think we're way undervalued on that basis. We trade at a at a multiple of about, uh, we trade for about 5%. Our market cap represents about 5% of the project value um, as described in our PEA. Whereas companies at this stage in this market, base metal companies are typically trading in the range of 15 to 20% of their project value. So we think we're way undervalued on the basis of Baptiste alone. Um, you know, market risk, I think, would just be general risk around you know junior mining, commodity prices, et cetera, uh, but nothing we see as being specific to the company. All right. The website is fpxnickel.com, ticker symbol in Toronto, FPX, and in the States on the OTC, F-P-O-C-F. Martin, thanks for coming on the show and giving us an update of the nickel market and FPX nickel. Thanks, Bill. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.